1: Sweet, sweet sugar, an awful politics. Sugar loaves are an old way of selling sugar that involved taking hot syrup, melted sugar, and pouring it into molds. It was a product of industrialization of sorts. Eighteenth century food processing. Ugly but necessary for transport and sale of sugar at this time. You had to take metal tongs and break it into pieces, and it often clumped up when put into cakes. This annoyed bakers at the time, and sometimes cake eaters. But these loaves would do more. In time, they would cause problems for a president of the United States as well. We'll get into that. But first, let's go back to Philadelphia, 1793, the yellow fever epidemic. We talked about Dr. James Hutchinson in a past episode, who died in this fever. We mentioned that, in addition to being a respected physician, he was part of a budding opposition. Really, the doctor was starting something new in America at the time, that there could be organized opposition to the government at all. He and his friends had advanced pretty far before Yellow Fever took him. They had formed Philadelphia's Democratic Society and boasted of 300 members, many more supporters. Together, they would seek to dislodge the Philadelphia Junto, the elite group that controlled the city's politics. They would involve new people, artisans, mechanics, dock workers, from the poorer wards of the city. Get them to vote. But this was no group of commoners. Hutchinson was a respected doctor, as we said. His partner, Alexander J. Dallas, was a city lawyer. They had merchants and manufacturers among their numbers. A German Republican society was also formed. Germans had been the bulwark of the independence movement in Philadelphia and a significant group in the city. That Republican society was led by one of the Muhlenbergs, the name in German politics. The Philadelphia movement spread, and there were soon about 50 clubs all over the nation. Norfolk, Virginia, Portland, Massachusetts, now Maine, Washington County, Pennsylvania, New York City. There were five clubs in Vermont. There were several in South Carolina and North Carolina. Opportunity for all was their creed. Democracy. And something else. A foreign policy that favored the new French Republic after the French Revolution. And not Great Britain, who we'd won independence from. Opposition to a bank of the United States and some of Treasury Secretary Hamilton's experiments in financing. Opposition to great new excise taxes that were put in place. The reason that this whole thing is interesting is that there wasn't such an opposition before. I mean, the pro-administration party, it's a term historians use because they don't really have Democrats and Republicans today. You know, we call them Federalists. But people who supported generally the Washington administration, pro-administration party, they had run things since the ratification of the Constitution. George Washington is elected president. He's easily re-elected. The Congress is overwhelmingly of a Federalist thinking John Adams is elected vice president twice. They try to dislodge him in 1792 and not successful. He wins overwhelmingly both times. Now, in 1794, as Washington faces his sixth year in office, there's opposition. Of course, no one is foolish enough to attack Washington the man. Well, a few eventually will, but generally no. That would be foolish but they will oppose the actions of the administration. In fact, there's a toast that some of these opposition members, the budding Republican and Democratic societies, will give to each other at some meetings. And the toast is, to Washington, to 1789 and no further. In other words, we love the hero, love the general, father of the country, yes. But as a president, as a politician, not so much. The main figures associated with all of this, Hutchinson, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, though he was back home and swearing off politics, having left the cabinet. His very exit from the cabinet, though, a signal to some of the people in the Republican movement that he's not pleased. All of these main figures are doing something radical in two ways. Two ways that will even raise questions about politics today. One is, can there be an opposition to a government that is not led by a king, but elected by the people who are governed? Can you have an opposition at all in a democracy? Can you just oppose laws once created? Yes, you can run for House, you can run for President. You can run for state legislature. You can seek the people's favor. But once the election is over, aren't you supposed to lay down and let the will of the people run its course? Sounds crazy. It's not even a question anymore. We have full-time opposition parties. But it is a bit then. Hamilton writes a letter to Washington saying he doesn't understand how there can be anything called constitutional resistance to the government. There is no resistance to the government. Laws must be followed. Once enacted by the representatives of the people. The second question is, what role is there for these clubs, these societies, which would be mocked as self-created societies? Who made them boss? Why would they assume a power larger than the elected representatives of the entire people? They have no endorsement from the people or even from their state legislature. See, this sounds unquestionable. Today, of course, you have the right to form clubs and associations that will lobby the government, sometimes lobby the government for you. Of course if you're in a union, you can show up at your state assemblyman's office or your congresswoman's office and plead your case along with your union members. If you're a small businessman, of course you can go visit your congressman and try to get positive legislation for your business. We don't even think about these things today. And if you don't want to go alone, You can call yourselves the Connecticut Small Business Association and do it. We don't even think about question these things today. But it was then. And really, some of the issues in both of these questions are still alive. I mean, you look at the Citizen United debate. Similar questions are raised. How can we have these entities who speak when they're not people? Similar questions were raised about these societies. Now, we can think of these groups as either doing us a great favor or doing great harm to the republic. Either they set the standard for real oppositional politics, which made sure that no one could totally run the machine of government without being questioned, or they created a gridlock that remains today in an inaction in government. There's a cartoon that appears at this time, and it was called A Peep into the F- Anti Federalist Club. An etching appears in newspapers around the country, showing rough sketches, I mean, almost childlike sketches, cartoonish figures. In the center is a banker with a hammer, reading Shakespeare, and saying he would bring the government down so he might rise to eminence. There's a large, obese man, a drunk, sipping a pint of ale and saying, down with the government. There's a Frenchman singing, and contemplating the anarchy he might create to favor his country and its interests. There's a man, it is David Rittenhouse, a significant Philadelphian and a Republican, was looking at a telescope at the society's foolish creed in this cartoon. The creed says, Liberty is the power of doing anything we like. All power in one body, and that is ourselves. All means justified for good ends. The cartoon gets racist. It plays on fears. Because there's a black man called Citizen Mungo who is told by the society that he can be equal just like them. And in this mix, there is Thomas Jefferson, who is inciting the devil. This peep into the anti-federalist club is the counterattack. The federalists are saying these societies will bring anarchy and bring down the government you fought so hard to establish. Well, at least in a part of the country, they nearly did. One of these clubs, the one in Mingo Creek, Pennsylvania, this is western Pennsylvania, near today's Pittsburgh, they're pretty angry about a new excise tax that is enacted on whiskey. The reason for these taxes, and there's several of them, the whiskey one's more famous, is because the national government needed to pay bonds. It had debt to Americans. It had debt to French, Dutch, Spanish bondholders who had financed the national government's debt, pay for the expenses of the Revolutionary War, and setting up a national government. Alexander Hamilton, as Treasury Secretary, sets up a number of these excise taxes. One is on whiskey. Here's the issue. In Pennsylvania, and in parts of North Carolina and Virginia, Whiskey is not something merely that people enjoy to drink, although they do. It's also extra income for farmers. And in an area where it's not as easy to get money as Philadelphia and the eastern cities, whiskey is used as a form of currency, a way to trade things. The federal government institutes a special excise tax on stills. Well, this group, the Mingo Creek Association, decides they've had enough They make it impossible to enforce the excise in the area, and they attack the excise collector's house. There's a shootout. The excise collector does escape, but several men are shot. Now, this actually splits some of these Republican clubs because the Eastern clubs, clubs in Philadelphia and Baltimore, are going to condemn this whiskey rebellion. Baltimore actually announces at their club meeting that they will supply members to join and crush this rebellion. They don't get the chance, but the federal government under President Washington leads an army constitutive militia of several states out to western Pennsylvania to crack down on the rebels. They make a few arrests. Rebellion ended. The Whiskey Rebellion is important for codifying the power of the national government over a group of rebellious people. It's also important for making sure that the western frontier didn't separate from the eastern side. Almost a possibility of that happening. These significant events, the enactment of unpopular taxes, six years of a government kind of on the wane, but yet an incident with a group trying to rebel, perhaps, and the crushing of that group in a widely popular move. You can say that the two forces now in American politics are almost at parity, the Federalists and the Republicans, as we'd call them today. This brings you to 1794. And the clubs and societies would have the greatest influence when they did more than just complain, more than just meet and talk and issue credos. They influenced when they started winning elections. It begins with an interesting character that they called Slick Willie. No, I mean, actually, they didn't really call him that, but almost the same thing. John Swanwick was, the broadsheets of Philadelphia would tell you, as slippery as an eel. That's because he was an unlikely hero. He was a wealthy banker who became a Republican. He worked with Robert Morris, premier financier in America, one of the wealthiest men in the nation in North America, certainly in Philadelphia. He was his cashier, then his partner. And then either because he wanted special favors and didn't get them, that's what the opponents will tell you, or because he legitimately wanted the country to be freer for people. He joins the club formed by Hutchinson in Dallas. Then he runs for the state assembly in 1792, and he wins, appealing to new voters. Pennsylvania was very liberal about its voting. Then He does something else. He announces that he will challenge Thomas Fitzsimmons for his seat in the House of Representatives. Oh, well, this is not a big deal today, right? Politician on the make announces he's going to run for another office. Not a big deal. But back then, you just didn't do that sort of thing. You got your friends to build a campaign and say, Hey, this guy, you know, my brother or my friend or my legal partner is going to start uh, running next year. So get ready. No. Swanwick comes out and says, I'm running for Fitzsimmons seat. He has some assets. Swanwick is a good speaker. And he's got a knack because, oddly enough, he's also a poet. And he's going to publish a book of poetry that will enter American literature. And yes, in that anti-federalist cartoon, he is the banker who's quoting Shakespeare. But he's got more than just good oration skills. He's got a great issue. The new federal excise taxes, which anger manufacturers and workers. There's a couple of them. We talked about whiskey. There's also a tax on snuff. This is inhaled tobacco. Now, it's not just like Republicans like to smoke. There's 250 jobs in this industry in Philadelphia. And the workers and the manufacturers alike are mad about the new excise tax. There's also a tax on sugar sold by the loaf. Sugar is a big industry in Philadelphia, and there's many of these mills where they make sugar loaves. Plus the whiskey tax. Swanreck is careful here. He doesn't support the rebellion, but he thinks the tax should be reduced or eliminated. He speaks out with his political poetry to the masses. Philadelphia is divided into wards and significant Republican club members are in charge of these wards to get out the vote. This is the largest particular organization of its time. Meanwhile, up in Boston, which was Federalist pro-administration, generally speaking, Federalist territory, Republicans are starting to hold rallies attacking two representatives in particular, Fisher Ames and Samuel Dexter, who are key Federalist incumbents in the House. They have large rallies in Faneuil Hall in Boston, and they take some of Dexter's speeches and totally misquote them, making him sound more pro-British. The crowds are enraged. Federalists fight back with newspapers comparing the Federalists to French radicals, Scottish rebels, and anarchists. In all of this, a schooner owned by a leading Federalist is raided by a group of angry mobsters connected to Republicans. And the Federalist accused the Republicans of now starting a Navy to take over the nation. There's no DNC or RNC at this time. The Republican effort is a group of separate people in their states, united, however, by their general correspondence and visits to each other. The leaders that are most influential nationally are going to be Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And James Madison is an elected politician, being a member from Virginia in the House of Representatives. James Madison writes to Thomas Jefferson, The elections for the next Congress are generally over, except in Virginia and North Carolina and New York. In Massachusetts, there has been a violent contest in most of the districts. All that will probably be gained is a spirit of inquiry and competition in that quarter. Ames is reelected, after the most unparalleled exertions and according to report by the additional aid of bad votes. Sedgwick's fate is not known. The chance is said to be in his favor, but it is agreed that he will be sweated. As he has not yet appeared, he is probably nursing his declining popularity during the crisis. From New York, we are promised at least half of the new representatives for the Republican scale. The election, notwithstanding its inauspicious circumstances, surely a reference to the Whiskey Rebellion, is more Republican than the last. Nine, at least, out of 13 are counted on the right side, among them, Swanwick, in the room of Fitzsimmons, a stunning change for the aristocracy. The information from North Carolina is not decisive, but favorable. Yours, J. Madison.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvelukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country it's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. It's on, and Madison is hoping to pick up seats for his party the same way any leader of party would today. Swanwick, as indicated in the letter, wins his state by a large margin over Fitzsimmons. This is a shockwave. There are wins for the Republican members in New York City. Ed Livingston is going to enter the House and have a significant career. Added to this, two wins in Virginia. Even in Massachusetts, there's two wins. The Republicans beat Dexter and win the Cape Cod seat of now Representative Nathaniel Freeman. Republican. There's no TV set. There's no blinking lights here with states like coloring them in Federalist blue or Republican red. The elections aren't even held on the same day. They're sometimes held in a remote county courthouse and people go there and announce their votes to the judge. There's one election that's going to be in 1795 the next year. Doesn't matter. The result is just as shocking as such a midterm would be today. For the first time in American history, to the 1794 elections, there will be a branch of government that is largely opposed to what the government has been doing. One branch will not be aligned with the president. Again, this is not the Democrats and the Republicans of today. Madison's majority is not even absolute. There's not full confidence among all the new people elected that he's even the leader. Some of the people in the party don't trust him. Uh, Samuel McClay in Pennsylvania, who's elected during this election, is going to have a significant career as a Republican. He never feels that James Madison really converted to the cause after being a strong Federalist. Ed Livingston, and won't support his presidency later. Ostensibly, though, he's the leader of the party by two to five votes and can corral them for certain issues. And for Washington, there should be no mistake. This election is a political headache. Now there's a branch that can question, investigate what his administration's doing, control funding, block any new efforts, launch some efforts of their own. Any ambitious plans to expand what Hamilton had done in the Treasury are now done. And indeed, the next year, Washington's going to get into a nasty scuffle with the New House as they reject the American-British treaty known as the Jay Treaty. Washington will prevail, but only after a great fight. George Washington can't know it. But at this point in his presidency, he's starting a trend. Generally speaking, the sixth year of a presidency is bad for politics even where a president is popular, and no one can top Washington at this time, even after six years of popularity. Even there, the president's party has lost seats. This is most clear in the House, but generally true of the Senate as well, particularly when that body started getting elected directly. So, this painful midterm for Washington has been called by political commentators the sixth-year itch. Let's look at it, though. First, there are only so many presidents who even get to a sixth year in all of history. Uh, Just Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson, Grant, Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Reagan, Clinton, George W. Bush. But for all of them, the sixth year of these presidencies are mostly political disasters. With the exception of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. I mean, they have little opposition. The opposition party has been crushed. Plus, Congress is expanding with new states that tend to be Republican, so they don't see big losses in midterms. But if you start with Jackson's 1834 sixth years and move forward, sixth years are ugly for presidents, just like Washington was. In 1874, after some scandals, Grant is whacked. His GOP party crushed. A new party takes over the House. It's an interesting one because I talked about this topic back when the podcast started in 2006. And uh, well, I'll let you listen. Here's what I said. I'm Bruce Carlson. Join me. In History beats up on politics. In 1874, a time when rich illustrations delighted the many readers of newspapers, a New York newspaper ran a detailed piece of artwork by Thomas Nash, a powerful illustrator and also a well known propagandist for the radical Republicans that generally dominated American politics in the post Civil War era. His drawing, too artful to be labeled a cartoon, featured an elephant, a particularly large one at that. Its eyes glazed over, almost asleep, not looking where it was going. Ahead of it, visible not to the elephant but certainly to the many readers, was a deep pit that certainly meant its doom. This is the elephant that would become what is now familiar to us as the proud symbol of the Republican Party, idolized in pictures celebrated at Republican Party functions at the state, local, national levels. Yet this proud elephant we know is not what Nash meant to convey at all at his drawing. Nash's elephant didn't represent the Republican Party, only its electorate. The words Republican voters were written on its side. His drawing featured a large enraged animal. It was stomping all over the ground, waving its trunk, and at its heels was a jackass. And yes, indeed, the jackass that would one day become the donkey. And yes, it is quite ironic that an anti-Democrat would end up choosing the embraced symbol of the Democratic Party, albeit in its milder donkey form. This jackass was the clear villain in Nash's graphic story, chasing the huge elephant and pushing him towards a pit. The scene of Nash's artwork was President Grant's second term and the second year of that second term, 1874, a time that was tinged with opinions of Republicans involving corruption and economic downturn. The Republican Party was split between radical Republicans who wanted to pursue reconstruction and liberal Republicans who did not. There were other policy differences as well. And Nash saw Republican voters as being so mad at the now-soiled President Grant, so eager for changes, that he drew his elephant busy trampling pieces of wood, marked inflation, repudiation, and reformed, flimsy pieces of wood, so that the elephant could not see that it was falling into the sinister trap laid by Democrats. Nash's illustration like the warnings of the White House to its Republicans in Congress today, was an attempt to stop what he saw as a disaster, an implosion of the party that would lead to Democratic victory. But in this, Thomas Nash was fighting against history and the trend of a president's second term midterm, something that would bother presidents from Washington to the present day. In 1874, the Republicans were soundly defeated at the polls. And the Democratic Party, which in 1870s America was not the Democratic Party of today, was thought to be completely discredited and far too associated with the Confederacy to ever survive, was newly resurgent and would win 93 seats, easily taking over a house which they would control for several terms. That was back in the days of the Radio Shack Microphone. It continues, though. Wilson's 1918 midterm ruins his chances for a League of Nations. He loses a house in the Senate. Hurts his party in 1920. Franklin Roosevelt's 1938 midterm shuts down. The expansion of the New Deal fills Congress with opponents of Franklin Roosevelt. Now, some of them are Democrats. The party doesn't lose control of either body in the Congress. But it fills the Congress with opponents of him of both parties. 1986, also significant. It is the end of Reagan and the GOP's domination of the Senate, which they had captured in 1980. Eisenhower's also hit hard. 1958, loses 13 seats in the Senate. So, in modern history, you have just one exception, and that is the sixth year of Bill Clinton. Uh, that is 1998. And his party actually gains... Five seats in the House breaking this trend. Or so we thought. Because in 2006, in George W. Bush's sixth year, the trend continues. Huge loss in the House, loss of the Senate. Clinton's was seen as a victory because, of course, the expectations were that the President's party does not gain in the sixth year of the presidency in that midterm. But, you know, closer examination, it's not much of a victory. It's kind of like a null result. Uh, the party gains five seats in the House. It's not significant, doesn't change, control the House. Democrats don't get the, the House back. No gain in the Senate. Actually, in terms of popular vote in votes for the House of Representatives in 1998, more votes go to Republican candidates, even though more seats go to Clinton. So there's an element of, of districting that helps there. Some of the members elected, I mean, there's a guy, Ronnie shows who's elected in Mississippi, whose positions are largely those of the GOP. Doesn't really change the picture much for Clinton, but he did break the trend, and that was considered a bit of a stave in 1998. Impeachment battle was going on, there seemed to be a popular reaction to that and other factors. At least in modern times. Ignoring that 1998, a six-year president loses seats. Definitely in the House. President by the sixth year loses some influence. You know, six years of statements. And now the statements don't move people. The opposition's a bit stronger. There's intraparty rivals. There's people thinking about the next election. No one really cares that much this year about the House. I mean, we're pretty sure that the House isn't going to change. All eyes for this election are focused on the Senate. The Senate's where the actions is. Republicans need, it's fifty-five forty-five. If you count the two independents that vote with Democrats, Republicans need five to tie it and six to gain the Senate. They tie it. Joe Biden's vice president and will break votes. So let's look at this. You have six elections where a president was in their sixth year since the time that senators were elected directly, which you have to look at because we really can't account for what state legislatures were doing before that. Let's look at what happened to the president's party in all of those Senate elections. President's six year. 1918, loss of five Senate seats for Wilson's Democrats. 1938, loss of six Senate seats for Franklin Roosevelt's Democrats. 1958, loss of 13 Senate seats for Eisenhower's GOP. 1986, loss of eight Senate seats for Reagan's GOP. 1998, no Senate seats gained or lost for Clinton's Democrats. 2006, loss of six seats for Bush's GOP. The average loss is six seats in a sixth-year election. Odd how that works out. Now, if you want to add in VPs who took over in the first term of a presidency, then had a midterm in the administration, okay, You got 1926, Coolidge, 1966, LBJ, uh, 1950, Truman, five Senate seats. You're still right around six seats for an average loss in a president or their administration's six-year. It's bad news, I think, anyone who's rooting for Democrats generally in the Senate. And, of course, it's positive news for anybody who would like to see a Republican Senate and Republicans come to power in both houses of Congress. No president since the direct election of senators has ever gained seats for their party in a sixth-year midterm. Your best bet is that kind of fluky midterm of 1998, which is a no-gain, no-loss. Your disasters are eight Senate seats lost and 13 Senate seats lost, which is the high. In the current situation... The odd thing is the exact historical trend is exactly what Republicans need to win. So they need to actually get the average. It's interesting. And I don't hear a lot of discussion about this. Just, of course, you see everything like Larry Sabato and Nate Silver and political prognosticators kind of like that looking at poll data. And I think they're doing a very good job of kind of consolidating a lot of polls. I mean, you know, when you go back to the 80s or 90s, All that uh, political talk shows and the like talked about were like, this poll came out this day. And so, you know, the Democrats going to win or the Republican was going to win. It was extremely biased because one poll doesn't tell the story. So you've got to with the Internet and with some of these sites, you've got a much better aggregation of polls to try to get to something close to the truth of what's going on in the ground. But no one really focuses much on the history. And I guess it's this thought that like, you know, what, what is what happened to Woodrow Wilson? What would that have to do with uh, today's politics? Everything's new. So I'll certainly point out that there's agreement between some of the poll based findings and what you'd say for history that, you know, Sabato has it at a loss of uh, six to eight seats in the House, and Nate Silver has a a majority chance uh, that the Republicans will take the Senate, and he's been fairly consistent on that throughout the summer and fall. Why is a trend like this about a sixth year, like the thing that happened to Washington or Woodrow Wilson or Calvin Coolidge? And I think that the historical link to all this is two ways. And the main marker of this historical trend that you would look for is kind of a loss of Presidential political influence. And I think you see it here in this election. I mean, it's been six years. Obama's approval has been fairly low this year. His speeches don't kind of move anymore. It's hard to find a memorable word in them. It's been a long time since you can point to anything that, any action that he's significantly taken that people are really excited about. That's one. There's another historical trend that that changes only a little bit over time, is that the voter turnout is very different for midterms than it is for presidential elections. Presidential elections get the best representation of American voters. They're every four years. In the two-year midterms, it drops off. Turnout dropped off 19% between 2008 and 2010. You know, using that measure, you're going to see probably about 34 to 35% of voters come out for this one. Who's more interested in coming out when it's a low turnout is the people who are most angry, most motivated. By the way, turnouts has identical drops in 2006, 1998, 1986. Turnout drops almost anywhere from 15 to 20 points. If you look at the Senate this year, GOP pickups look likely, of course, in West Virginia and Montana. They were Democratic seats, but once vacated, doesn't look like much chance of a Democratic win there. Iowa is looking like the Republican candidate. It's close, but looking like the Republican candidate. Alaska, Arkansas, Colorado, South Dakota are areas where you could see GOP wins. At the very least, with all those states, there's a greater chance of capture than there is for any gain from Democrats in the few Republican seats that are up. Democrats could strike in Georgia or Kentucky. They could get an independent in Kansas. GOP could possibly win in New Hampshire. And they could, of course, force uh, Mary Landro down in Louisiana into a runoff, which she may have some trouble winning. So there's all sorts of interesting factors like Orman, who's the candidate in Kansas, says, well, I'm going to pledge to side with whoever is the majority party. That's who I'll caucus with, which means that you know who he's going to caucus with actually depends on who wins all the other elections. And you have two states, Georgia and Louisiana, that could go to runoff. So this whole thing might not be decided until January, which is interesting. But despite that, the trend does seem to be right in there with history, with an average of six seats. There, of course, could be changes to that. It is it is very close in some of these races, uh, so certainly not decided. But, you know, if someone forced to uh, me to make a prediction you now, it seems like things are right in that historical average of six losses that would change things. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you enjoy the program, you want more of it, we have an archive. It's 1888. If you go to the website, sign up there, you'll get within 24 hours. We'll send you a URL where you can get all of the episodes. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.
0: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but
1: nowhere as important to the world as China.